The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. Over the past few months, there has been colossal hype and speculation about the implications of large language models, LLMs, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and most recently GPT-4. ChatGPT in particular reached 100 millions or more users in two months, making it the fastest growing consumer application of all time. It isn't clear yet what kind of impact LLMs will have and opinions vary hugely. Many experts argue that LLMs have little impact. Early academic research even says that the capability of LLMs is restricted to formal linguistic competence or that even a near-infinite volume of text-based training data is severely limiting. Others argue the opposite, that the businesses that understand the significance of this change and act on it first will be at a considerable advantage. What we do know is that generative AI has captured the imagination of the wider public and that it can produce first drafts and generate ideas virtually instantaneously We also know that it can struggle with accuracy. Despite the open questions about this new technology, companies are now searching for ways to apply it. Is there a way to cut through the polarizing arguments, the hype and the hyperbole, and think clearly about where the technology will hit home first? Our guest today believes there is. Welcome to the Inside Learning Podcast, the podcast where we explore the science and future of learning. I'm your host, Aidan McCullen, and I'm excited to have Mark Ramos with us today. Mark is the CLO, the Chief Learning Officer of Cornerstone, a global leader in learning and talent management in technologies. With over 25 plus years of experience as a learning leader, Mark has worked with Google, Microsoft, Accenture, Oracle, and others. His insights and expertise have helped organizations develop and implement effective learning strategies that drive business results. In this episode, we'll be discussing the implications of LLMs, large language models, and exploring Mark's perspective on the latest trends and innovations in learning and development. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn from one of the most respected leaders in the field, Mark Ramos on Inside Learning. Now, before... I go to Mark. I have to admit, Mark, that intro may sound a bit unusual to our audience. That's because I fed information into OpenAI's ChatGPT to write me an intro about you today. And it is a great pleasure to bring the author of a recent HBO article amidst many others. And the name of that article was A Framework for Picking the Right Generative AI Project. And he did write that without the help of any type of AI. Welcome, Mark Ramos. Thanks so much, Aiden. It's so great to be here. And it's so great to talk about this exciting topic. And uh, if anything, hopefully, what you and I chat about is going to be beneficial to your um, audience uh, today and tomorrow. But again, very, very fortunate and very grateful to accept this invitation and to ideally share some helpful uh, insights. Well, I I thought to give context, I, I mentioned that 25 plus years career that you've had. And what I found really fascinating is is the various roles that you've been in and the various companies, very a lot of technology there. And to, to bring that expertise to the field of learning is an incredible advantage for you. 
And therefore, you have a unique way of looking at these new technologies like large language models. So maybe we'll start with that a little bit of the context of your career, because you've also spent a lot of time here in Dublin in your Google time. Yeah, I'm really lucky in the sense of I come from a family of educators, actually. My brother, my sister, my mom uh, were all teachers. Um, grew up in the U.S., uh, predominantly in um, the, the West Coast around California and so forth. But it's really, really interesting the way I kind of mention uh, my, my, my journey, so to speak, at least from a career perspective. I first got into training uh, when I was working in restaurants. Uh, restaurants in in uh, in my day, uh, at least in this part of the U.S. and and probably elsewhere, it was like where all the cool people <laughs> hung out. So I was trying to be cool like everybody else, and I ended up working in restaurants um, where I was doing everything from you know building nachos and shucking oysters and and whatever. But I got really really good at at uh, working in restaurants. Uh, behind the scenes, in the kitchen, and then um, in the front of the house related to waiting tables, uh, lunch service, and then dinner service. I was asked to train folks, and I got super frustrated because I was asked to um, uh, onboard uh, new employees, but uh, we didn't have anything called documentation. So I, um, I dealt with that frustration by convincing the management can I please just go ahead and document every process and procedure uh, in the restaurant that I worked at? And one thing led to another where we had to expand across the U.S. They used that documentation. Uh, they wondered who the heck built this stuff. Oh, it's that Mark Ramos guy. And then I was brought on board to be the opening restaurant training manager. So uh, at that time, we had opened up 30 plus restaurants a year and I was quite young. And that was my experience. But to be honest with you, Aiden, I had no clue what the heck I was doing. I had no understanding of what the heck proper you know, instructional design was all about, but did well in restaurant training, of all things, and then moved on to call center training, uh, and then retail, both on the, the, the front of the house stores, as well as uh, the behind the scenes distribution centers, and then got into the uh, technology uh, space from a training perspective, Oracle, and then later on, uh, Microsoft, Accenture, um, Google, uh, Novartis, uh, where my family lived in uh, Switzerland, and then um, moved back to the U.S. from Switzerland to work for Cornerstone. So a little bit of a diverse background, but I guess the core educator is part of my DNA. I'm a huge believer in the benefit of travel and not only the benefit of travel, but the benefit of experiencing different organizations and the different ways they do things. And therefore, the organization you're with now, like Cornerstone, they benefit from all those various lenses you've picked up across the way. But I was really, really interested. And in this article, I mentioned the HBO article because of your benefit of understanding technology. And that if you think of like a Venn diagram, the overlap between that and the passion for learning, because it's one of the things you mentioned in that article that I really wanted to shine a light on that the benefits that ChatGPT or any kind of LLM can offer for learning, both corporate learning and later education, I, I imagine, is massive. And I'd love you to share, firstly, maybe your definition of LLM for those of our audience who don't really understand them. And then let's explore where you see it going in the future. Yeah, it's a really good, great question. And I just want to set the stage to the couple things. One is, I actually wrote that HBR article with a good colleague of mine in the industry, uh, Mark Zal Sanders. So I want to make sure he gets full credit as the co-author. And the other thing is, 
I'm not a uh, an engineer. I'm not a coder. I'm not a programmer. So my lens when looking at the value, the benefits, the uh, the absolute uh, impact of um, AI and generative AI and chat GPT and so forth. And we can talk more about the details, but I think those benefits are, are huge. But my point here is I'm the lens I, I, I wear, uh, Aiden, when looking at this and the opportunity, it's really from a learning practitioner's perspective. So that's the, the voice or the angle, so to speak, that I uh, aim to share in this podcast. Let's zoom into the article from that perspective, because I love the way you open the article. You you get right down to business. You begin by posing questions about risk and demand. And on risk, you ask, how likely and damaging is the possibility of untruths and inaccuracies generated and disseminated? And on demand, you pose the question, what is the real and sustainable need for this kind of output beyond the current buzz? And in that article, you present a two by two matrix. And maybe we'll speak to that matrix with empathy for an audience who can't see it. And we can expand on that and then explore how we can navigate that matrix and make decisions about how to use this technology. Yeah, if one can imagine a a pretty straightforward um, and simplistic view of a a two by two, the, the Y vertical axis, we'll just say is the demand. Uh, the bottom of that axis is low demand, and then the high um, part of that axis is high demand. Uh, and then the other axis, the horizontal axis, is on risk, and kind of the same construct from low risk to high risk. And the way that I um, was thinking about this with my co-author, uh, Mark Zalsander, is really, you know, there's so much um, noise and there's so much hype and there's so much confusion where if an individual or a team or a company sees some advantages related to how, you know, chat GBT, which is, uh, I think, the really, really big visible um, an active uh, push right now in terms of um, AI as a tool, you know, the question is, you know, where do I play? Um, where do I start? Uh, yet, given some of the constraints of what's happening related to AI broadly, you know, some of those constraints or reservations or hesitations are around ethics or more from a, a learning or training or academic perspective is, you know, to what degree is the machine not going to be truthful? To what machine is AI going to maybe spin the response, right? Once you put in your prompt, your, your query, your question, is it going to be accurate? Is it going to be um, thoughtful from uh, the perspective of, uh, of the learner based on how that question was posed? Uh, so on and so forth. So when I think about the, the value of this matrix, it's really to help folks make a decision in terms of where do you want to play uh, and where do you want to start exploring related to, in this case, chat GBT. And I think the most predominant version, which is a chat uh, GPT, GPT, pardon me, 3.5, which came out in November. And you don't need to know the nitty gritty and stuff. But when you go to the OpenAI uh, site, this is the company responsible for uh, chat GPT. Um, it's the 3.5 version that's uh, publicly available, I think, still for free. So I'll just use that as a main reference. But getting back to the the 2x2, two two, uh, one of the... 
uh, aspects that we listed in terms of helping to make proper decisions. In other words, where do I start? It's around these two vectors. So one has to do with uh, the demand side. In other words, um, if I have three different projects that I want to explore in terms of the use and potentially the value of ChatGBT, uh, from a demand perspective, is there a high demand? Is it going to benefit uh, a lot of different roles, a lot of different processes? Um, is there, on the other side, a, a low demand? In other words, you know what? It's just too much of a, I don't know, uh, you know, on one extreme, I've heard the term comical affair, meaning it's just kind of too fun. It's too amusing. There's no like real practical use of it. So that's kind of like on the demand side. And again, we'll look at that as kind of the, the, the Y axis, the vertical axis, again, going from low to high. And then there's the, the other axis, the horizontal axis related to risk, again, low risk, high risk. And the way that we constructed that view is, you know, to what degree, um, or the way we kind of phrased it in, in the article, you know, how damaging would it be if the untruths coming from the response and any inaccuracies, right? What if they're generated uh, and then shared with others? So what's your tolerance of stuff that might not be true or correct? And that's how we're looking at kind of the, the, the risk uh, axis, at least related to this two by two. And I think those are two fair considerations. They're not anything, you know, significantly, you know, innovative or, or new. Uh, I think it's just a very common sense approach. Again, looking at it from the lens of a practitioner, it's just kind of a common sense approach in terms of where do I start? Where do I play? Is there going to be some sort of utility or demand? And by the way, am I willing to deal with any risks if the responses are maybe not, are, you know, not fully, you know, complete, or maybe there's a little bit of insincerity or untruth in some of that. And so you need to kind of think through those, those two considerations. So that was really the, the bulk uh, or the main point of this article. And then for Mark and I, again, my co-author, we've received a lot, a lot of really interesting um, feedback from a variety of folks related to its use, its utility, just to have a, again, kind of a common sense approach in terms of how do I approach this thing called ChatGPT, then some of the other, you know, AI properties that are um, being uh, developed. A lot of things came to mind, Mark, as I read the article, including there's a, a law called Amara's law, a guy called Roy Amara coined this term, he said, we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short term, and underestimate the effect in the long run. And I thought that was interesting, taking that as a lens. And then when you think about most innovations, they start off kind of clumsy, not working very well, including stuff like the motor car. The original cars were called stink chariots because they broke down so often and they were so smelly. <laughs> the original iPhone didn't even work on the stage and it launched with a, without a, a text messaging ap application and that was updated in the software later on. And they were dismissed by the incumbents. And... I do think, though, this is different. And I know there's been kind of AI peaks in the past and AI winter winters, but it feels like this is a different time and people get it now and creatives get it now and they feel the breeze at their heels that this is a threat to many, many types of career is one thing. 
And then the people who have more of a ten- positive tendency to look at these things see it as a great opportunity because it may be able to spark ideas or I can th- throw ideas into any type of LLM and get kind of inspiration in ways that I wouldn't have thought about because it's a machine. <laughs> and I'd love your opinion on those kind of polarizing views and, and maybe even the, you know, some people kind of going, oh, it's years away from taking off, but this time it's different. And we've even seen the difference in the jumps from three to four to five, the jumps in power and sophistication is massive. And I think you're spot on related to the the quote that you, that you mentioned, because there's um, the way I think about um, that perspective, at least related to AI. And again, um, the quote that you stated, it's, there's something that I hear from a lot of folks in the industry that this whole new version of, of, of you know, generative AI and, and, and chat GBT and so forth. And you're totally right, right? It's been a little hiccupy in terms of its, its use, its utility, its application, its value for anybody, right? But it reminds me of another quote that I heard from someone it might have been uh, Donald Clark, who's just such an expert in this space. It was something like, you know, what we know about the current version of AI, what we know about, you know, generative AI or whatever today is not how it will be used tomorrow. And there's a lot to that in the sense of the technology is moving so quickly. Gotcha. The adoption is also taking off quickly in some domains and some areas. Gotcha. But there's still a lot of confusion, I think, to your prior point of just, you know, where do we play, where do we start, and so forth. And then it's it's really fascinating in terms of there's like this, there's this, you know, polemic um, uh, view of its value versus its danger, right? I think from a uh, an academic, you know, perspective, there was uh, just, a, there was an announcement, I think, from the uh, New York, um, a school district, I think at the high school level, where they have absolutely officially blocked any use of chat GPT in its schools. Um, I was in um, Singapore last week and also speaking on this. And for some of the Asian uh, academic areas, I think the University of Hong Kong, it uh, is has fully banned the use of chat GPT. I think the, the Bengaluru University, uh, I think that's the uh, proper name in India, They've also banned it. And then you got like pretty advanced, you know, business schools. You got the, the, Wart, the, uh, the Wharton Business School in the U.S. And you've got professors there that are now requiring uh, students to use ChatGPT as part of the curriculum, as part of the studies. So you've got, you know, that, that dilemma, uh, even in our own kind of academic space of, okay, so where do we play? You know, again, what's the risk versus the demand? And then even on the, the the corporate side, you're kind of seeing the same kind of polemic um, view or misunderstanding or, or what have you. Uh, a lot of big financial firms, chat, um, GBT, I think was just recently banned by Goldman Sachs and Citibank. Uh, and I think JP Morgan. So a lot of big financial firms, right? For their view of risk, uh-uh, <laughs> it's not worth the risk. And I think even Amazon, I think a lot of the Amazon programming teams, they're now officially uh, cannot use it or there's like an official warning. I'm not really, really sure. But then you got the other side, right? You got 
other companies that are totally taking advantage of it in terms of, I think it's Coca-Cola is using ChatGPT now to really understand uh, consumer behaviors better. So that way they can um, position their offerings in much more advanced ways. Uh, then you have like consulting companies, PwC in particular comes to mind in terms of, you know, really um, building its own chatbots using AI to help make um, the legal process, you know, uh, reviewing uh, agreements and then coming up with uh, unique, um, you know, legal responses and so forth, again, using, uh, in this case, chat GPT. But in all those scenarios, I just want to, you know, um, recommend to the audience, really, if you're looking at it from the academic perspective and you don't want plagiarism to be a part of that, whether that's on the academic side or even within the corporate side, whether it is on the corporate side and all the other sectors, you know, there are countries now that are officially turning it off, Italy, then there's countries like Finland or Iceland, pardon me, they're officially making it a standard. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the tolerance of the risk. And if you have that tolerance based on the utility and your aim at the at the end, you really, really, really need to go through the due diligence to make sure that you are reviewing the output and that the output is absolutely correct. And based on its use again, uh, if it's gonna reach the entire country of Iceland, you better make sure that you know it is absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, so there's limitations and then there's the limitations and a little bit of the anxiety perhaps on one side versus, and then the hype, then versus practical use. And I think that's a, a dilemma that we all have in the HR side and the learning side and the talent side of just where do we play? And then hopefully the the two by two um, that we have listed in this article is going to be a useful tool. It's useful just to even go, okay, where do I get started? You reminded me of a couple of things and, and I'm just going to go two two ways. So the the dystopian and the utopian view. So the from a utopian perspective, you mentioned Iceland there, and it reminded me of this, this great Icelandic composer, a guy called Olafur Arnolds, and he's one half of a band called Chiasmos, but he's also a classical pianist. And he did this amazing thing where he took an old technology, it was like a Moog, it was called a Moog piano bar. And the whole idea of the Moog piano bar was to, to, to digitize a classical piano so you could use a classical piano as a keyboard. And this was the early days of that type of technology, music technology. But he, he got a friend to hack it and <laughs> he attached it to two other grand pianos. And what he did was he created an algorithm. And the idea of the algorithm was that the AI essentially would play a note that he would never think of playing. So the, the goal was, he was saying, as a classical trained pianist, he would play a C. And, you know, I'm getting this wrong, but he'd say the next note you would be a C naturally leads to an F sharp or a, a G, whatever. But he was saying the beauty about playing with these two separate pianos that are, are led lead him ways and places that he would never ever go because he'll play a note and they'll play a sequence of notes and because they play that sequence of notes it inspires him then to go a different direction in his creativity and i was i think it's just this beautiful analogy wow. for what ai can do from a positive perspective and i i've tested this with the various llms that 
I write in metaphor and I'll I'll suggest my metaphor and I kind of go I'm thinking of using this metaphor what would you add to it or just uh, take away from it in order to make it more powerful and it will come up with things that I just wouldn't think of because it's not even human <laughs> and I, I think it's that idea of the centaur the the man and machine human and machine working together that is a real utopian view and where we can go from a positive sense. And I'd love your opinion on that. I'll reference um, uh, my friend Donald Clark again. He has this one quote, and it might be useful, particularly related to your your creative piano uh, example. Um, Aiden, his quote is, um, I don't know if this is verbatim, but it's something like AI, uh, AI is uh, competence without comprehension. And I'd love that because there's um, the fact that, you know, it can be a very, very competent machine. And I realize there's the factors and the risks related to whether or not the output is absolutely correct and all that stuff. But there's a certain competence there that's growing big time. There's a, a recent study that, um, you know, so how smart is the difference between the November version of chat GPT uh, 3.5 versus the one that's publicly available now, which is 4.0. And uh, chat GPT 3.5 was able to complete a U.S. bar exam to become a lawyer at roughly 9% accuracy. And the difference in just, what, three, four months between 3.5, the November release, and current 4.0 is uh, the current version actually um, passes the same bar exam with 90% accuracy. Um, so that's how quickly uh, the machine is becoming competent. But um, again, thinking about Donald's statement, competence without comprehension, the comprehension part is really important because it doesn't know a lot of the context, the background, the, the, the intention, right? It's got to figure that stuff out. Um, and I think that's super fascinating because there's maybe a third C in addition to competence and comprehension, and that's creativity. I think to your point, Aiden, there's a wonderful article. Um, maybe I'll dig it up and, and send it to you, and, and maybe you can pass that on to the audience, where it was like MIT or Harvard or somebody, they basically said, well, actually, uh, working with the open AI folks in the US, we actually have some you know, empirical data, for lack of better words, that the machine is becoming that much more creative. And one can argue, you know, whether or not any non-human entity would have the same level of creativity. Uh, one example, uh, if it helps, is kind of tied to the piano one to a certain degree, is uh, someone fed into the current version of, uh, of a GBT 4.0. It said something like, you know, tell me the story of the Wizard of Oz and using uh, our... Um, alphabet from A to Z, A to Z, right? Describe to me in those number of words, starting with A, uh, a letter, I'm sorry, a word with A and then a word with B and then a word with C, dot, dot, dot. Tell me the story of the Wizard of Oz. Now that's a fairly creative question uh, from the prompt. And the response was actually really, really, really insightful. I think it's on the OpenAI site as one of their examples of quote unquote you know, AI becoming more creative. Now, I don't know if that's really creativity from our perspective, from a human perspective, but it's becoming a lot more astute and a lot smarter, 
related to how to, you know, juggle disparate pieces of stuff into something via a quote unquote unique or creative process. So I think there is some harmony related to that aspect, but it, again, I was thinking about this, um, this statement from uh, Donald, you know, AI is competence without comprehension. And I think that's totally there. The other thing that I, I just wanted to, to say is, you know, thinking about it again from the, the lens of a, of a learning practitioner, particularly somebody that has to build or produce content, that's probably the number one area that I'm starting to see with a lot of companies and within the industry and with some colleagues and friends that if there's one area to start to explore, um, maybe using this two by two dimension of demand versus risk, but if there's one area that's really easy to explore, frankly, without a lot of risk is to go to um, the open AI side, get access to the free version of a uh, chat GPT. It kind of looks like uh, uh, Google, right? That, 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 that single kind of uh, uh, window or box to, to enter your, um, your submission, your entry, your prompt, as they're calling it. And just ask it something very simple that uh, an instructional designer or a learning designer would ask a client. It could be something like, you know, hey, client, I'm doing the, the proper needs analysis. So what I would ask is, you know, how are you identifying the certain problems related to, I'm just making this up, related to uh, a product marketeer, uh, product marketeering role or a product management role that's, that's more, I think, broader. What are some of the challenges for uh, product um, marketing managers these days in terms of deploying more cloud-based products, particularly related to the financial sector um, and unique to um, product marketing folks that are just out of college. So what are some of their requirements? And then by the way, you know, share with me the top three uh, skills that they need to learn related to AI to help accelerate their learning. That's a really, really long uh, question. But if you add that type of question, list that type of prompt, as it's called, into the machine. Just check out the output. If you haven't done this already, uh, I suspect a lot of folks on this on this call, on this podcast, may have already played with it. But if you haven't, do something as simple as that. And then you can use the same output. Let's just say it's four paragraphs of, of, of output. And then ask a follow-up question, you know, you know, based on this output, uh, put together for me a uh, a learning outline, a learning plan, a learning core structure, however you want to phrase it, that includes X, Y, Z, you know, formative, formative uh, questions, uh, give me three different use cases, dot, 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 dot. And then check out that output. Now, this is really, really easy stuff to do, but if you're, if you're in the learning space and if you do anything close to building content or managing teams that must produce content, give this a try and you'll see exactly the, the benefits are most likely going to be around efficiencies, time savings. Time savings also equals, you know, labor savings, resource savings, uh, speed. And then there's this other thing related to a little bit of a contextual value. I mentioned a certain role. I mentioned, you know, a certain vertical financial services. So you can add in some of those contextual parameters into your, your query, your prompt. And... At the, at the end, really, it's about, you know, giving you a much better, uh, via this discovery process, a much better output that if it's at, if it's 60% correct, you just saved 60% of your time to get to something where you can refine that 60% and you can continue to work with 
the machine or your team to fill in that void of the the 40%, so to speak. So there's a lot, a lot of benefits. And we're seeing a lot of benefits, mostly on the content side uh, within the industry. And then, you know, some of the work that we're also doing within Cornerstone. Maybe we'll we'll share just a brief example of that work that you're doing Cornerstone. I wanted to, as well, you, you touched on this, and I don't want to finish on a negative, but there's been this call for a pause on AI and AI development. Now, the, the problem with that is nobody wants to hand the competitive advantage of time to a competitor. And you know what that's like in a place like Google is that you don't time to market and time to gathering data to be able to feed, uh, whether it's Google Maps or whatever. We saw that with Apple Maps versus Google Maps. We saw what time and getting a head start can do. But this is the big problem because there is an advantage in getting ahead of the other countries, uh, other companies, other organizations. Nobody really wants to pause. And if they're pausing, are they really pausing? So this is the real challenge. And maybe we'll we'll give you a quick top line on that. And then we'll get back to how you're using it and engaging it with Cornerstone. It is a problem. And I am totally aware of this, uh, this call. Um, for signatures related to banning it for six months or something like that. And there's been some really interesting responses. Obviously, you know, Elon Musk, he's kind of in an awkward position because he actually signed uh, this, uh, this statement. But then again, he just announced that he's starting, he's, he's, uh, he's creating his own, you know, his own AI company to be a competitor to OpenAI and Google and Microsoft and Accenture and Meta and blah, blah, blah. So I think that's just uh, really interesting. Um, and then I think for a lot of uh, uh, companies, um, particularly in the learning space, I mean, you know, it's not just Cornerstone. I think there's a lot of other um, learning companies and a lot of enterprises on their own. They're really exploring more of the advantages of um, ChatGPT. And again, I'm thinking about it more from a, a, an instructional designer practitioner perspective around content. Now, there's one thing to kind of you know accelerate and speed up content production and provisioning and organization and dot dot dot. I think the really interesting place is more or less around you know understanding exactly where that learner is coming from, and then you know the famous you know you know, personalizing um, the content in such a way where the content is not just like tailored for, you know, Joe or Jerry or John or Mary or what have you, you know, for that individual. It's one thing to have AI curate out of a, out of a catalog of a hundred different, you know, learning assets. Here's the top 17 for you. It's another thing to look at that entire catalog and say, here's all the different, um, forms of text and videos and questions and use cases and scenarios and activities from that entire catalog. And then to identify those, those, those micro learning assets for lack of better words. And then here's, here's the trick, right? On one side, you know, it could curate the top 17 courses for you, but that's not exactly for me, me, that's not personal to my unique skill Delta. You know, why don't you look at that entire catalog, find those individual smaller assets, regardless if it's in 17 classes or 37 classes, and rebuild an entire course for me 
from those assets. That's one thing. But the other thing, which I think is really valuable and really interesting, is how do I um, allow the learner to adapt their learning process, their flow as they're experiencing this new output of whatever, you know, 18 hours of X, I'm just kind of making this up. But how can they actually be, how can the, um, the content adapt to that individual's needs, but adapt based on their experience within the class? So a real quick example is if I'm a salesperson and I want to become like a, like a data scientist or something like that. And let's just say that the company offers or a library provider, um, Coursera, LinkedIn, Skillsoft, whatever, they provide, you know, an 18-week program on how to become a data scientist. But let's just say that even though I'm a salesperson, I come from a family of data scientists, so it's already kind of built into me. So let's just say out of those 18 weeks, I already know half of it. And why give me the full 18 weeks when I only need, quote, unquote, 50, you know, 50% of it or roughly, you know, nine weeks of stuff? And so how do I adapt that experience for me being a salesperson to become a data scientist by only giving me that, that 50%, but giving it to me in smart chunks that also has the right kind of flow within that, 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 that learning experience. And then feeding me the right type of questions along the way. So that way the machine, so to speak, is tracking whether or not I get it, if I'm consuming it. But most important, asking me the right side of questions where I said, I, I know this, I know 50% of the stuff. Well, actually, Mark, no, because you're not answering questions based on that 50% that you say you do know correctly, you actually only know 25%. So let me feed in and adapt the content for the stuff that you're not even aware that you don't even know. So this whole kind of adaptive learning piece, I think, is, is a really, really interesting space. And there's a lot of great vendors, a lot of companies as well that's, that's playing in this arena. But that, I think, is a really, really great opportunity. Again, thinking about it more from a, a learning practitioner's perspective. I love that. I, I love that. And that's, that goes back to the utopian view and using this, using these tools wisely. And I, I also always feel like there's sometimes people will take the message worse from a human <laughs> than they will from a machine. If the, the machine says, you know what, Aiden, you're lacking a little bit in this area. The machine doesn't care. It doesn't care about your emotions or anything like that. But it, some people will lose face if that's another human being telling them that. And I think that's a, a really positive part of this. Mark, it, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I wanted to ask, where can people find out more about your work, about your writing? Because you do a lot of writing apart from that HBO article, which we will link to. And we'll link to that article that you're going to send to me as well. But where can people find you to find out more about your work and Cornerstone? Yeah, in terms of uh, my work, I, you can find me in LinkedIn, which is probably the most um, <laughs> updated uh, uh, public uh, resource. Um, and then just find me, Mark Ramos, in LinkedIn, um, you know, Cornerstone, Google, whatever you want your, your search criteria, and, the, and you'll probably find me there. And then I have a, a collection of articles and posts. Uh, and then I'm, I'm very happy to um, have anyone uh, of interest, uh, you know, uh, follow, so to speak, some of the things that I post there, then obviously the other way around too, because, you know, I, I'm learning so much from others throughout the process, but LinkedIn's probably the best way. And then from a Cornerstone perspective, you know, we're doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, and I would just encourage folks to kind of keep track of what's happening in the industry 
related to a lot of these um, uh, new technologies and new approaches. But in terms of just, uh, you know, a lot of the, the work that I'm doing, I just funnel everything that I can uh, through uh, LinkedIn. So that's probably the best, uh, uh, a single destination for lack of better words. So this is not ChatGPT or any type of LLM saying this. So it's been an absolute pleasure uh, joining you and learning from you on the Inside Learning podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Center here in Trinity College. Our guest is Mark Ramos. Mark, thank you for joining us. Great pleasure to be here. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.